0: From TheHeart.org radio, in collaboration with Mayo Clinic, you are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks.
1: Greetings. I'm Dr. Sudhir Kushwaha, uh, Medical Director of the Mayo Clinic uh, Heart Transplant and VAD Program, and uh, I'm joined today on Mayo Clinic Talks by my colleague, Dr. Rocky Daly, who's the Surgical Director of the Heart Transplant and VAD Program. We will be discussing heart transplantation, and this is part two of um, a two session um, podcast. Just to briefly summarize, um, in the first session, we discussed transplant candidacy. We discussed the difference between status 1A and status 1B and status 2 patients on the list once the patients had been listed. We discussed the role of um, bridge to transplant VAD therapy. and uh, the status that confers on the patient once they've had an implant, and how that's that's changed uh, the field. Um, And uh, um, we're going to move on now today and talk uh, further about uh, a number of transplant-related areas, including peri- and post-operative management, long-term management, and long-term morbidity and mortality. So let's start off with... uh, a patient who um, has been listed and who undergoes um, heart transplantation. I'm going to ask Rocky to discuss what the major operative issues are, including the process of harvesting the donor and the time from harvesting to implantation. Okay.
0: Thanks, Sadir. It's good to be back with you for the second session here. Uh, the, uh, process of transplant really starts when we get uh, an organ offer, and uh, UNOS, uh, a few years back, has gone to an electronic system for organ offers that allows the uh, coordinator, the donor coordinator, uh, with uh, the local organ procurement organization who's at the hospital with the uh, donor to make offers uh, uh, in an electronic fashion and offer uh, organs to several institutions at one time. So Uh, on the receiving end of the offers, we will get uh, a number of offers where the uh, other institutions are also being offered the donors simultaneously, and this speeds along the process of uh, uh, the allocation process uh, because every donor is not appropriate for every recipient. And uh, uh, on the other hand, we will get offers that uh, we would hope to use but find that uh, we're down the list a little further from somebody who has already taken the heart. Uh, it causes uh 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 rumors sometimes that a transplant might be occurring and uh I just mention it so that if your patient uh, brings up this sort of thing it's it's related to the uh uh UNOS uh, process of the uh uh electronic allocation. But what we do is, is accept the uh, organ if it's appropriate for our recipient. And then uh, if it c- actually comes to us, they, they phone us and we review the details about the uh, donor and make sure that uh, we understand all the details and that things are appropriate. Uh, and if we agree still that the donor looks, uh, looks appropriate for our recipient, we start, it, we start the process. Um, if our recipient's not uh, in the hospital, we call them in. And make arrangements for their uh, admission in a a very quickly, a timely manner. We make arrangements uh, with the donor uh, procurement coordinator for uh, our team to go and uh, uh, perform the procurement and do the final assessment. Uh, And uh, our team, uh, once our team arrives at the hospital, they uh, make sure that things are acceptable from the standpoint of uh, consent and. Uh, uh, blood group, all the things that we need to double check, and they assess the heart uh, itself uh, visibly to be sure that it's acceptable. Uh, And uh, then if all is well, then we go ahead with the transplant. The heart is uh, procured at the same time uh, along with the uh, abdominal uh, organs and the lungs uh, and uh, transferred back to our institution and we'll be uh, have made our timing arrangements so that we're ready for the heart when it arrives and uh, we've usually already started the operation in our recipient uh, and uh, uh, go ahead with the uh, with the transplant. Um, The uh, major concern really uh, is a risk of primary graft failure uh, and there is a small risk of that even with today's uh, levels of uh, assessment of the donor and with the ways of uh, preservation of the organs. yeah, but we still probably see a uh 2 or 3 maybe 5% incidence of unexplained primary graft failure which isn't so really related necessarily to to a rejection.
1: Yeah, so what do we do um as the um, initial immunosuppressive strategy in the operating room? So we you've sewn in the um new heart. Um the patient is um going to be reperfused shortly. What do we give initially to try and prevent um, acute rejection in the operating room? Yes,
0: yeah, so our our protocol uh, is to give one dose of steroids before the patients go to the operating room, to give the steroids a few hours to uh, have uh, full activity, and then after we have come off cardiopulmonary bypass and given protamine so bleeding isn't too much of an issue, we give another dose of high-dose steroids, and we follow this. Uh, Uh, in our protocol with uh, ATG, uh, which uh, we believe uh, helps uh, in terms of avoiding calcineuron inhibitors perioperatively, preserving renal function. And we found it uh, very reliable in terms of uh, eliminating risk of uh, cell-mediated rejection perioperatively.
1: Now, most um, I think most centers would give um, an initial dose anyway of what we would call induction therapy, usually ATG in this day and age, although previous agents um, have included um, um or OKT3 is another agent which used to be used, but um, the use of these induction agents um, routinely post-implant is not so um, uh, widespread now. I think we still use them, but uh, um, maybe up to a week or so after um, transplantation, but the, the use of them is somewhat variable, wouldn't you say, Rocky? For the induction agents? Yes. Yes. Uh, it's controversial, really, isn't it? Uh,
0: yeah. Uh, we we f- feel like we can rely on it uh, and that it has the advantages of protecting the kidneys and being very reliable for eliminating uh, cell-mediated rejection, but other programs prefer to go ahead with uh, calcineurin inhibitors in the operating room. and. Uh, uh, their protocols have been very successful for them. I, I think what we, what we find is that we, we learn our immunosuppression protocol at our institution. We understand what the uh, risks are and the limitations are. And uh, then we are able to manage the patients uh, with a good understanding of our protocol. And others would uh, uh, use different protocols but also understand the, the limitations of their protocol. Uh,
1: and all have had very good outcomes. That's correct, and then longer term, all patients end up on, on what we would call uh, triple immunosuppression, um, and that typically includes uh, a, a calcineurin inhibitor. Um, it used to be cyclosporin mostly, but I think most centres now are using uh, tacrolimus, otherwise known as Prograph, and uh, mycophenolate um, and steroids. And the steroids typically start off at a fairly High dose, which is is a weight adjusted dose, and then we try and do a relatively rapid taper, uh, a tapering program prior to uh, the patient being discharged, and that immunosuppression usually um, maintains um, and the organ and prevents acute rejection from occurring. Although we still do see uh, acute rejection, uh, in particularly in the um, early. Uh, post-transplant period, really within the first three to six months, it's uh, it's quite common. Now, uh, the surveillance for rejection is the next uh, topic we're going to talk about. Uh, we and most centers, I think, historically have relied on the use of the endomyocardial biopsy and there are um, newer uh, techniques which uh, are being developed and are being uh, looked at and have, uh, there's been a number of studies done but I would still say that uh, uh, the endomyocardial biopsy uh, remains the gold standard in terms of looking for rejection. Um, do you think that uh, um, we rely on this too much, or you think it still really has a has a role, Rocky, in the uh, in the present uh, post transplant management strategies? Oh, I think I think it remains an essential part of the
0: strategy. I think we, there are other. Uh, options, but uh, we we
1: have not gotten away from the need for the gold standard, uh, for yeah. sure. Do you think um, in terms of uh, some of the, we typically look for cell-mediated rejection using the biopsy, but um, there's also what we call antibody-mediated rejection. Um, what, what, uh, um, role do you think biopsy has in trying to predict antibody mediated rejection and if we have a negative biopsy and a failing heart um, how do we look at that patient?
0: Of course we try to avoid antibody mediated rejection at the time of transplant because nowadays we know the uh, HLA type of our uh, uh, donor uh, and we know antibodies that the uh, recipient has so we can Uh, virtually cross match the uh, donor and recipient uh, uh, prior to accepting a heart. But uh, if we do encounter uh, rejection that we can't explain on the basis of uh, cellular infiltrates, uh, that is, organ dysfunction uh, after transplantation uh, and biopsy not showing cellular infiltrates, then we've assumed that this was related to antibodies in the past. We have uh, staining techniques, such as a C4D stain uh, 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 for, uh, uh, to try to uh, diagnose antibody-mediated rejection, but sometimes it's a clinical diagnosis where we don't have another explanation for graft dysfunction uh, late. Uh, isn't that right?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's the key point. I think if, uh, if we um, see a patient whose cardiac function drops post-transplant, um, and we don't see any evidence of cell-mediated rejection or any evidence under the microscope that there's a cellular infiltrate causing damage to the myocardium, then we uh, suspect that it's probably uh, antibody-mediated rejection. And sometimes that's correlated with uh, elevated uh, circulating antibodies or donor-specific antibodies, which um, which we refer to them as, um, which are elevated and can be measured In the bloodstream, and that is sometimes supportive evidence. Um, In any case, we still cover the patient for both cell mediated and antibody mediated rejection, but um, the typical treatment for cell mediated rejection is uh, intravenous high dose steroids, typically methylprednisolone. Um, But once that's been given, if we do have evidence that there might be circulating elevated antibody levels, There are um, other agents we can give, as well as doing plasmapheresis, which is basically a way of removing those circulating antibodies from the circulation to try and uh, decrease the the immune assault from them. And then we would back that up with other um, agents. And many of these therapies are experimental at this point, but seem to have a role. Uh, including drugs which act against the B cells mainly. Um, and I think the scope of this presentation doesn't allow too much of a detailed discussion about that. But uh, I think that we're learning as we go along, wouldn't you say, Rocky? Well, oh, you know, for sure. In this area, that's changing all the
0: time. Let me ask you about uh, the role of cyrolimus because you've been a leader in uh, uh, using uh, serolimus and changing patients uh, to this. You know, we dismiss patients on triple immunotherapy. We try to wean the steroids, but uh, we pay a price with the calcineuron inhibitors over time. And uh, you've been a, a leader in uh, in the nation in uh, changing patients over to uh, serolimus. Can you just talk about that for a few minutes?
1: Yes, well, um, the two main problems following Uh, transplantation, once they're over that acute um, uh, first six months, I would say, um, is the long-term morbidity of renal dysfunction, which is a side effect of calcineurin inhibitor therapy. So when I looked at our population several years ago, 11% of our heart transplant population were either um, on the renal transplant waiting list um, or undergoing dialysis, and uh, that's really a significant number, and, and and then patients who weren't in that category had significant degree of renal dysfunction. And so uh, sirolimus uh, does not act uh, through the same pathway. It's what's called a mTOR inhibitor or mammalian target of rapamycin inhibitor, and it suppresses T cells using a different mechanism and doesn't cause direct toxicity to the kidneys and so we um, initially adopted a strategy of trying to switch patients over and um, we we have shown through our studies that the degree of rejection didn't increase um, and their kidney function got better and so um, that was an immediate benefit of, of using that drug the long term benefit we've also looked at and, and, and published in a couple of uh, papers is the is the benefit on allograft vasculopathy. Now, um, allograft vasculopathy is uh, a coronary disease, diffuse coronary disease, which affects the transplanted heart. And it's really the direct result of chronic, what I would say, chronic immune assault, um, low grade, which happens over time uh, to the transplanted heart. And Uh, results in endothelial dysfunction, uh, um, intimal proliferation, and smooth muscle hypertrophy so that the coronary arteries gradually become narrowed over time. So if you look at the coronary angiogram of a patient who's over five years out and compare it with their baseline study, we will see that the uh, coronaries are significantly narrowed in terms of their diameter and often in terms of uh, decrease in, in their blood flow as well. Now, what sirolimus does is it's a powerful anti-proliferative agent. And so it seems to stop the proliferative process and um, attenuate allograft vasculopathy. In fact, our most recent study, um, which was published earlier this year, we demonstrated that uh, over a four-year period, there's really no significant change in intimal thickening compared to controls who have been maintained on calcineurin inhibitors. So what we think is that this is going to have a role in prolonging overall survival because ultimately the, the biggest cause of mortality after heart transplant is actually allograft vasculopathy and if we look at the historical survival figures from the um, ISHLT, we see that um, there's about a um, 50% uh, 10 to 15-year survival, and I say say 10 to 15 uh, because some of that data is historical and from the early days of transplant. So we really think it's um, um, an important part of the immunosuppressive strategy to the extent that in our population, we've adopted a strategy of trying to convert most patients by six months. And the reason we've picked six months is that because this drug is a powerful anti-proliferative, we want to make sure that um, all the wounds are appropriately healed and uh, that there are no other issues going on and that that the patient is at a stable point. Good.
0: Thanks, Sudhir. I think we're low on time now, and we'll uh, wrap this up
1: for today. We certainly appreciate everybody's uh, attention. Sudhir? Yep. Thank you, Rocky. I think it's been a great discussion. I hope we've covered all the major points related to heart transplantation. Thank you. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Visit theheart.org to find out more.